Book Three, Chapter One of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. Book Three, Chapter One. The two ladies, who, in advance of the Swiss season, had been warned that their design was unconsidered, that the passes wouldn't be clear, nor the air mild, nor the inns open, the two ladies, who, characteristically, had braved a good deal of possibly interested remonstrance, were finding themselves, as their adventure turned out, wonderfully sustained. It was the judgment of the head-waiters and other functionaries on the Italian lakes that approved itself now as interested. They themselves had been conscious of impatiences, of bolder dreams, at least the younger had, so that one of the things they made out together, making out as they did an endless variety, was that in those operatic places of the Villa d'Este, of Cadenabbia, of Palanza and Streza, Lone women, however reinforced by a travelling library of instructive volumes, were apt to be beguiled and undone. Their flights of fancy, moreover, had been modest. They had, for instance, risked nothing vital in hoping to make their way by the Brunig. They were making it, in fact, happily enough as we meet them, and were only wishing that, for the wondrous beauty of the early high-climbing spring, it might have been longer, and the places to pause and rest more numerous. Such, at least, had been the intimated attitude of Mrs. Stringham, the elder of the companions, who had her own view of the impatiences of the younger, to which, however, she offered an opposition, but of the most circuitous. She moved, the admirable Mrs. Stringham, in a fine cloud of observation and suspicion. She was in the position, as she believed, of knowing much more about Milly Thiel than Milly herself knew, and yet of having to darken her knowledge as well as make it active. The woman in the world least formed by nature, as she was quite aware, for duplicities and labyrinths, she found herself dedicated to personal subtlety by a new set of circumstances, above all by a new personal relation, had now in fact to recognise that an education in the occult, she could scarce say what to call it, had begun for her the day she left New York with Mildred. She had come on from Boston for that purpose, had seen little of the girl, or rather had seen her but briefly, for Mrs. Stringham, when she saw anything at all, saw much, saw everything, before accepting her proposal, and had accordingly placed herself, by her act, in a boat that she more and more estimated as, humanly speaking, of the biggest, though likewise, no doubt, in many ways, by reason of its size, of the safest. In Boston, the winter before, the young lady in whom we are interested had, on the spot, deeply, yet almost tacitly, appealed to her, dropped into her mind the shy conceit of some assistance, some devotion to render. Mrs. Stringham's little life had often been visited by shy conceits, secret dreams that had fluttered their hour between its narrow walls without for any great part so much as mustering courage to look out of its rather dim windows. But this imagination, 
the fancy of a possible link with the remarkable young thing from New York, had mustered courage, had perched on the instant at the clearest lookout it could find, and might be said to have remained there till, only a few months later, it had caught, in surprise and joy, the unmistakable flash of a signal. Millie Thiel had Boston friends, such as they were, and of recent making, and it was understood that her visit to them, a visit that was not to be meagre, had been undertaken, after a series of bereavements, in the interest of the particular peace that New York couldn't give. It was recognised, liberally enough, that there were many things, perhaps even too many, New York could give, but this was felt to make no difference in the important truth that what you had most to do, under the discipline of life or of death, was really to feel your situation as grave. Boston could help you to that as nothing else could, and it had extended to Milly, by every presumption, some such measure of assistance. Mrs. Stringham was never to forget, for the moment had not faded, nor the infinitely fine vibration it set up in any degree ceased, her own first sight of the striking apparition, then unheralded and unexplained. The slim, constantly pale, delicately haggard, anomalously, agreeably angular young person, of not more than two and twenty summers, in spite of her marks, whose hair was somehow exceptionally red even for the real thing, which it innocently confessed to being, and whose clothes were remarkably black even for robes of mourning, which was the meaning they expressed. It was New York mourning, it was New York hair, it was a New York history, confused as yet, but multitudinous, of the loss of parents, brothers, sisters, almost every human appendage, all on a scale and with a sweep that had required the greater stage. It was a New York legend of affecting, of romantic isolation, and beyond everything, it was, by most accounts, in respect to the mass of money so piled on the girl's back, a set of New York possibilities. She was alone, she was stricken, she was rich, and in particular was strange, a combination in itself of a nature to engage Mrs. Stringham's attention. But it was the strangeness that most determined our good lady's sympathy, convinced as she had to be that it was greater than anyone else, any one but the sole Susan Stringham, supposed. Susan privately settled it that Boston was not in the least seeing her, was only occupied with her seeing Boston, and that any assumed affinity between the two characters was delusive and vain. She was seeing her, and she had quite the finest moment of her life in now obeying the instinct to conceal the vision. She couldn't explain it. No one would understand. They would say clever Boston things. Mrs. Stringham was from Burlington, Vermont, which she boldly upheld as the real heart of New England, Boston being too far south, but they would only darken counsel. There could be no better proof than this quick intellectual split of the impression made on our friend, who shone herself, she was well aware, with but the reflected light of the admirable city. She too had had her discipline, but it had not made her striking. It had been prosaically usual, though doubtless a decent dose, and had only made her usual to match it, usual, that is, as Boston went. She had lost first her husband, 
and then her mother, with whom, on her husband's death, she had lived again, so that now, childless, she was but more sharply single than before. Yet she sat rather coldly light, having, as she called it, enough to live on, so far, that is, as she lived by bread alone. How little, indeed, she was regularly content with that diet, appeared from the name she had made, Susan Shepherd Stringham, as a contributor to the best magazines. She wrote short stories, and she fondly believed she had her note, the art of showing New England without showing it wholly in the kitchen. She had not herself been brought up in the kitchen. She knew others who had not, and to speak for them had thus become with her a literary mission. To be, in truth, literary, had ever been her dearest thought, the thought that kept her bright little nippers perpetually in position. There were masters, models, celebrities, mainly foreign, whom she finally accounted so, and in whose light she ingeniously laboured. There were others whom, however chattered about, she ranked with the inane, for she bristled with discriminations. But all categories failed her, they ceased at least to signify, as soon as she found herself in presence of the real thing, the romantic life itself. That was what she saw in Mildred, what positively made her hand a while tremble too much for the pen. She had had, it seemed to her, a revelation, such as even New England, refined and grammatical, couldn't give, and, all made up as she was of small neat memories and ingenuities, little industries and ambitions, mixed with something moral, personal, that was still more intensely responsive, she felt her new friend would have done her an ill turn if their friendship shouldn't develop, and yet that nothing would be left of anything else if it should. It was for the surrender of everything else that she was, however, quite prepared, and while she went about her usual Boston business with her usual Boston probity, she was really all the while holding herself. She wore her handsome felt hat, so Tyrolese, yet somehow, though feathered from the eagle's wing, so truly domestic, with the same straightness and security. She attached her fur boa with the same honest precautions, she preserved her balance on the ice-slopes with the same practised skill. She opened each evening her transcript with the same interfusion of suspense and resignation. She attended her almost daily concert with the same expenditure of patience and the same economy of passion. She flitted in and out of the public library with the air of conscientiously returning or bravely carrying off in her pocket the key of knowledge itself. And finally, it was what she most did, she watched the thin trickle of a fictive love interest through that somewhat serpentine channel in the magazines which she mainly managed to keep clear for it. But the real thing all the while was elsewhere. The real thing had gone back to New York, leaving behind it the two unsolved questions, quite distinct, of why it was real, and whether she should ever be so near it again. For the figure to which these questions attached themselves, she had found a convenient description. She thought of it for herself always as that of a girl with a background. The great reality was in the fact that, very soon, after but two or three meetings, the girl with the background, the girl with the crown of old gold, 
and the morning that was not as the morning of boston but at once more rebellious in its gloom and more frivolous in its frills had told her she had never seen any one like her they had met thus as opposed curiosities and that simple remark of milly's if simple it was became the most important thing that had ever happened to her it deprived the love interest for the time of actuality and even of pertinence it moved her first in short in a high degree to gratitude and then to no small compassion yet in respect to this relation at least it was what did prove the key of knowledge it lighted up as nothing else could do the poor young woman's history that the potential heiress of all the ages should never have seen any one like a mere typical subscriber after all to the transcript was a truth that in especial as announced with modesty with humility with regret described a situation it laid upon the elder woman as to the void to be filled a weight of responsibility but in particular it led her to ask whom poor Mildred had then seen, and what range of contacts it had taken to produce such queer surprises. That was really the inquiry that had ended by clearing the air. The key of knowledge was felt to click in the lock from the moment it flashed upon Mrs. Stringham that her friend had been starved for culture. Culture was what she herself represented for her, and it was living up to that principle that would surely prove the great business she knew the clever lady what the principle itself represented and the limits of her own store and a certain alarm would have grown upon her if something else hadn't grown faster this was fortunately for her and we give it in her own words the sense of a harrowing pathos that primarily was what appealed to her what seemed to open the door of romance for her still wider than any than a still more reckless connection with the picture papers for such was essentially the point it was rich romantic abysmal to have as was evident thousands and thousands a year to have youth and intelligence and if not beauty at least in equal measure a high dim charming ambiguous oddity which was even better and then on top of all to enjoy boundless freedom the freedom of the wind in the desert it was unspeakably touching to be so equipped and yet to have been reduced by fortune to little humble-minded mistakes it brought our friend's imagination back again to new york where aberrations were so possible in the intellectual sphere and it in fact caused a visit she presently paid there to overflow with interest as milly had beautifully invited her so she would hold out if she could against the strain of so much confidence in her mind and the remarkable thing was that even at the end of three weeks she had held out but by this time her mind had grown comparatively bold and free it was dealing with new quantities a different proportion altogether and that had made for refreshment she had accordingly gone home in convenient possession of her subject new york was vast new york was startling with strange histories with wild cosmopolite backward generations that accounted for anything and to have got nearer the luxuriant tribe of which the rare creature was the final flower the immense extravagant unregulated cluster with free-living ancestors handsome dead cousins 
lurid uncles, beautiful vanished aunts, persons all busts and curls, preserved, though so exposed, in the marble of famous French chisels, all this, to say nothing of the effect of closer growths of the stem, was to have had one small world-space both crowded and enlarged. Our couple had at all events effected an exchange. The elder friend had been as consciously intellectual as possible, and the younger, abounding in personal revelation, had been as unconsciously distinguished. This was poetry. It was also history, Mrs. Stringham thought, to a finer tune even than Metalink and Patter, than Marbot and Gregorovius. She appointed occasions for the reading of these authors with her hostess, rather perhaps than actually achieved great spans, but what they managed and what they missed speedily sank for her into the dim depths of the merely relative, so quickly, so strongly had she clutched her central clue. All her scruples and hesitations, all her anxious enthusiasms, had reduced themselves to a single alarm, the fear that she really might act on her companion clumsily and coarsely. She was positively afraid of what she might do to her, and to avoid that, to avoid it with piety and passion, to do, rather, nothing at all, to leave her untouched, because no touch one could apply, however light, however just, however earnest and anxious, would be half good enough, would be anything but an ugly smutch upon perfection, this now imposed itself as a consistent and inspiring thought. Less than a month after the event that had so determined Mrs. Stringham's attitude, close upon the heels, that is, of her return from New York, she was reached by a proposal that brought up for her the kind of question her delicacy might have to contend with. Would she start for Europe with her young friend at the earliest possible date, and should she be willing to do so without making conditions? The inquiry was launched by wire. Explanations in sufficiency were promised. Extreme urgency was suggested, and a general surrender invited. It was to the honour of her sincerity that she made the surrender on the spot, though it was not perhaps altogether to that of her logic. She had wanted, very consciously, from the first, to give something up for her new acquaintance, but she had now no doubt that she was practically giving up all. What settled this was the fullness of a particular impression, the impression that had throughout more and more supported her, and which she would have uttered so far as she might, by saying that the charm of the creature was positively in the creature's greatness. She would have been content so to leave it, unless indeed she had said, more familiarly, that Mildred was the biggest impression of her life. That was, at all events, the biggest account of her, and none but a big clearly would do. Her situation, as such things were called, was on the grand scale, but it still was not that. It was her nature, once for all, a nature that reminded Mrs. Stringham of the term always used in the newspapers about the great new steamers, the inordinate number of feet of water they drew, so that if, in your little boat, you had chosen to hover and approach, you had but yourself to thank, when once motion was started, for the way the draught pulled you. Milly drew the feet of water, and odd though it might seem that a lonely girl, who was not robust, and who hated sound and show, should stir the stream like a leviathan, 
her companion floated off with the sense of rocking violently at her side. More than prepared, however, for that excitement, Mrs. Stringham mainly failed of ease in respect to her own consistency. To attach herself for an indefinite time seemed a roundabout way of holding her hands off. If she wished to be sure of neither touching nor smutching, the straighter plan would doubtless have been not to keep her friend within reach. This, in fact, she fully recognised, and with it the degree to which she desired that the girl should lead her life, a life certain to be so much finer than that of anybody else. The difficulty, however, by good fortune, cleared away as soon as she had further recognised, as she was speedily able to do, that she, Susan Shepherd, the name with which Milly for the most part amused herself, was not anybody else. She had renounced that character. She had now no life to lead, and she honestly believed that she was thus supremely equipped for leading Milly's own. No other person whatever, she was sure, had to an equal degree this qualification, and it was really to assert it that she fondly embarked. Many things, though not in many weeks, had come and gone since then, and one of the best of them, doubtless, had been the voyage itself, by the happy southern course, to the succession of Mediterranean ports, with the dazzled wind-up at Naples. Two or three others had preceded this, incidents, indeed rather lively marks, of their last fortnight at home, and one of which had determined on Mrs. Stringham's part a rush to New York, forty-eight breathless hours there, previous to her final rally. But the great sustained sea-light had drunk up the rest of the picture, so that for many days other questions and other possibilities sounded with as little effect as a trio of penny whistles might sound in a Wagner overture. It was the Wagner overture that practically prevailed, up through Italy, where Milly had already been, still further up and across the Alps, which were also partly known to Mrs. Stringham, only perhaps taken to a time not wholly congruous, hurried, in fact, on account of the girl's high restlessness. She had been expected, she had frankly promised, to be restless. That was partly why she was great or was a consequence at any rate, if not a cause. Yet she had not perhaps altogether announced herself as straining so hard at the cord. It was familiar, it was beautiful to Mrs. Stringham, that she had arrears to make up, the chances that had lapsed for her through the wanton ways of forefathers fond of Paris, but not of its higher sides, and fond almost of nothing else but the vagueness, the openness, the eagerness without point, and the interest without pause, all a part of the charm of her oddity, as at first presented, had become more striking, in proportion as they triumphed over movement and change. She had arts and idiosyncrasies, of which no great account could have been given, but which were a daily grace if you lived with them, such as the art of being almost tragically impatient, and yet making it as light as air, of being inexplicably sad, and yet making it as clear as noon, of being unmistakably gay, and yet making it as soft as dusk. Mrs. Stringham by this time understood everything, was more than ever confirmed in wonder and admiration, in her view that it was life enough simply to feel her companion's feelings, 
but there were special keys she had not yet added to her bunch, impressions that of a sudden were apt to affect her as new. This particular day on the great Swiss road had been, for some reason, full of them, and they referred themselves provisionally to some deeper depth than she had touched, though into two or three such depths, it must be added, she had peeped long enough to find herself suddenly draw back. It was not Milly's unpacified state, in short, that now troubled her, though certainly, as Europe was the great American sedative, the failure was to some extent to be noted. It was the suspected presence of something behind the state, which, however, could scarcely have taken its place there since their departure. What a fresh motive of unrest could suddenly have sprung from was, in short, not to be divined. It was but half an explanation to say that excitement, for each of them, had naturally dropped, and what they had left behind, or tried to, the great serious facts of life, as Mrs. Stringham liked to call them, was once more coming into sight as objects loom through the smoke when smoke begins to clear, for these were general appearances from which the girl's own aspect, her really larger vagueness, seemed rather to disconnect itself. The nearest approach to a personal anxiety, indulged in as yet by the elder lady, was on her taking occasion to wonder if what she had more than anything else got hold of mightn't be one of the finer, one of the finest, one of the rarest, as she called it, so that she might call it nothing worse, cases of American intensity. She had just had a moment of alarm asked herself if her young friend were merely going to treat her to some complicated drama of nerves. At the end of a week, however, with their further progress, her young friend had effectively answered the question, and given her the impression, indistinct indeed as yet, of something that had a reality compared with which the nervous explanation would have been coarse. Mrs. Stringham found herself from that hour, in other words, in presence of an explanation that remained a muffled and intangible form, but that assuredly, should it take on sharpness, would explain everything and more than everything, would become instantly the light in which Milly was to be read. Such a matter as this may at all events speak of the style in which our young woman could affect those who were near her may testify to the sort of interest she could inspire. She worked, and seemingly quite without design, upon the sympathy, the curiosity, the fancy of her associates, and we shall really ourselves scarce otherwise come closer to her than by feeling their impression, and sharing, if need be, their confusion. She reduced them, Mrs. Stringham would have said, to a consenting bewilderment, which was precisely, for that good lady, on a last analysis, what was most in harmony with her greatness. She exceeded, escaped measure, was surprising, only because they were so far from great. Thus it was that on this wondrous day by the Brunig, the spell of watching her had grown more than ever irresistible, a proof of what, or of a part of what, Mrs. Stringham had, with all the rest, been reduced to. She had almost the sense of tracking her young friend, as if at a given moment to pounce. She knew she shouldn't pounce, she hadn't come out to pounce, yet she felt her attention secretive all the same, and her observation scientific. She struck herself as hovering like a spy, applying tests, laying traps, concealing signs. This would last, however, 
only till she should fairly know what was the matter, and to watch was after all, meanwhile, a way of clinging to the girl, not less than an occupation, a satisfaction in itself. The pleasure of watching, moreover, if a reason were needed, came from a sense of her beauty. Her beauty hadn't at all originally seemed a part of the situation, and Mrs. Stringham had even, in the first flush of friendship, not named it grossly to any one. Having seen early that for stupid people, and who, she sometimes secretly asked herself, wasn't stupid, it would take a great deal of explaining. She had learnt not to mention it till it was mentioned first, which occasionally happened, but not too often, and then she was there in force. Then she both warmed to the perception that met her own perception, and disputed it suspiciously as to special items while, in general, she had learnt to refine even to the point of herself employing the word that most people employed. She employed it to pretend she was also stupid, and so have done with the matter, spoke of her friend as plain, as ugly even, in a case of especially dense insistence, but as, in appearance, so awfully full of things. This was her own way of describing a face that, thanks doubtless to rather too much forehead, too much nose and too much mouth, together with too little mere conventional colour and conventional line, was expressive, irregular, exquisite, both for speech and for silence. When Milly smiled, it was a public event. When she didn't, it was a chapter of history. They had stopped on the Brunig for luncheon, and there had come up for them, under the charm of the place, the question of a longer stay. Mrs. Stringham was now on the ground of thrilled recognitions, small sharp echoes of a past which she kept in a well-thumbed case, but which, on pressure of a spring and exposure to the air, still showed itself ticking as hard as an honest old watch. The embalmed Europe of her younger time had partly stood for three years of Switzerland, a term of continuous school at Vevey, with rewards of merit in the form of silver medals tied by blue ribbons, and mild mountain passes attacked with alpenstocks. It was the good girls who, in the holidays, were taken highest, and our friend could now judge, from what she supposed her familiarity with the minor peaks, that she had been one of the best. These reminiscences, sacred to-day because prepared in the hushed chambers of the past, had been part of the general train laid for the pair of sisters, daughters early fatherless, by their brave Vermont mother, who struck her at present as having apparently, almost like Columbus, worked out all unassisted a conception of the other side of the globe. She had focused Veve, by the light of nature and with extraordinary completeness, at Burlington, after which she had embarked, sailed, landed, explored, and, above all, made good her presence. She had given her daughters the five years in Switzerland and Germany that were to leave them ever afterwards a standard of comparison for all cycles of Cathay, and to stamp the younger in especial, Susan was the younger, with a character that, as Mrs. Stringham had often had occasion through life to say herself, made all the difference. It made all the difference for Mrs. Stringham, over and over again, and in the most remote connections, that, thanks to her parents' lonely, thrifty, hardy faith, she was a woman of the world. 
there were plenty of women who were all sorts of things that she wasn't, but who, on the other hand, were not that, and who didn't know she was, which she liked, it relegated them still further, and didn't know either how it enabled her to judge them. She had never seen herself so much in this light as during the actual phase of her associated, if slightly undirected, pilgrimage, and the consciousness gave perhaps to her plea for a pause more intensity than she knew. The irrecoverable days had come back to her from far off. They were part of the sense of the cool upper air, and of everything else that hung like an indestructible scent to the torn garment of youth the taste of honey and the luxury of milk, the sound of cattle-bells and the rush of streams, the fragrance of trodden balms and the dizziness of deep gorges. Milly clearly felt these things too, but they affected her companion at moments, that was quite the way Mrs. Stringham would have expressed it, as the princess in a conventional tragedy might have affected the confidant if a personal emotion had ever been permitted to the latter. That a princess could only be a princess was a truth which, essentially, a confidant, however responsive, had to live. Mrs. Stringham was a woman of the world, but Milly Thiel was a princess, the only one she had yet had to deal with, and this, in its way too, made all the difference. It was a perfectly definite doom for the wearer. It was for everyone else an office nobly filled. It might have represented, possibly, with its involved loneliness and other mysteries, the weight under which she fancied her companion's admirable head occasionally, and ever so submissively, bowed. Milly had quite assented at luncheon to their staying over, and had left her to look at rooms, settle questions, arrange about their keeping on their carriage and horses, cares that had now, moreover, fallen to Mrs. Stringham as a matter of course, and that yet for some reason, on this occasion particularly, brought home to her, all agreeably, richly, almost grandly, what it was to live with the great. Her young friend had, in a sublime degree, a sense closed to the general question of difficulty, which she got rid of, furthermore, not in the least as one had seen many charming persons do, by merely passing it on to others. She kept it completely at a distance. It never entered the circle. The most plaintive confidant couldn't have dragged it out, and to tread the path of a confidant was accordingly to live exempt. Service was, in other words, so easy to render that the whole thing was like court life without the hardships. It came back, of course, to the question of money, and our observant lady had by this time repeatedly reflected that if one were talking of the difference, it was just this, this incomparably, and nothing else, that, when all was said and done, most made it. A less vulgarly, a less obviously purchasing or parading person she couldn't have imagined, but it prevailed even as the truth of truths, that the girl couldn't get away from her wealth. She might leave her conscientious companion as freely alone with it as possible, and never ask a question, scarce even tolerate a reference, but it was in the fine folds of the helplessly expensive little black frock that she drew over the grass as she now strolled vaguely off. It was in the curious and splendid coils of hair, done with no eye whatever to the mot du jour, 
that peeped from under the corresponding indifference of her hat, the merely personal tradition that suggested a sort of noble inelegance. It lurked between the leaves of the uncut but antiquated Tauchnitz volume, of which, before going out, she had mechanically possessed herself. She couldn't dress it away, nor walk it away, nor read it away, nor think it away. She could neither smile it away in any dreamy absence, nor blow it away in any softened sign. She couldn't have lost it if she had tried. That was what it was to be really rich. It had to be the thing you were. When at the end of an hour she hadn't returned to the house, Mrs. Stringham, though the bright afternoon was yet young, took with precautions the same direction, went to join her in case of her caring for a walk. But the purpose of joining her was in truth less distinct than that of a due regard for a possibly preferred detachment, so that once more the good lady proceeded with a quietness that made her slightly underhand, even in her own eyes. She couldn't help that, however, and she didn't care, sure as she was, that what she really wanted wasn't to overstep, but to stop in time. It was to be able to stop in time, that she went softly, but she had on this occasion further to go than ever yet, for she followed in vain, and at last with some anxiety, the footpath she believed Milly to have taken. It wound up a hillside, and into the higher alpine meadows, in which, all these last days, they had so often wanted, as they passed above or below, to stray, and then it obscured itself in a wood, but always going up, up, and with a small cluster of brown, old, high-perched chalets, evidently for its goal. Mrs. Stringham reached in due course the chalets, and there received from a bewildered old woman, a very fearful person to behold, an indication that sufficiently guided her. The young lady had been seen not long before passing further on, over a crest, and to a place where the way would drop again, as our unappeased inquirer found it in fact a quarter of an hour later, markedly and almost alarmingly to do. It led somewhere, yet apparently quite into space, for the great side of the mountain appeared, from where she pulled up, to fall away altogether, though probably but to some issue below and out of sight. Her uncertainty, moreover, was brief, for she next became aware of the presence on a fragment of rock twenty yards off, of the Tauchnitz volume the girl had brought out, and that therefore pointed to her shortly previous passage. She had rid herself of the book, which was an encumbrance, and meant, of course, to pick it up on her return. But as she hadn't yet picked it up, what on earth had become of her? Mrs. Stringham, I hasten to add, was within a few moments to see, but it was quite an accident that she hadn't, before they were over, betrayed by her deeper agitation the fact of her own nearness. The whole place, with the descent of the path, and as a sequel to a sharp turn that was masked by rocks and shrubs, appeared to fall precipitously, and to become a view, pure and simple, a view of great extent and beauty, but thrown forward and vertiginous. Milly, with the promise of it from just above, had gone straight down to it, not stopping till it was all before her, and here, on what struck her friend as the dizzy edge of it, she was seated at her ease. 
the path somehow took care of itself and its final business but the girl's seat was a slab of rock at the end of a short promontory or excrescence that merely pointed off to the right at gulfs of air and that was so placed by good fortune if not by the worst as to be at last completely visible for mrs stringham stifled a cry on taking in what she believed to be the danger of such a perch for a mere maiden her liability to slip to slide to leap to be precipitated by a single false movement by a turn of the head how could one tell into whatever was beneath a thousand thoughts for the minute roared in the poor lady's ears but without reaching as happened milly's it was a commotion that left our observer intensely still and holding her breath what had first been offered her was the possibility of a latent intention however wild the idea in such a posture of some betrayed accordance of milly's caprice with a horrible hidden obsession but since mrs stringham stood as motionless as if a sound a syllable must have produced the start that would be fatal so even the lapse of a few seconds had partly a reassuring effect it gave her time to receive the impression which when she some minutes later softly retraced her steps was to be the sharpest she carried away this was the impression that if the girl was deeply and recklessly meditating there she wasn't meditating a jump she was on the contrary as she sat much more in a state of uplifted and unlimited possession that had nothing to gain from violence she was looking down on the kingdoms of the earth and though indeed that of itself might well go to the brain it wouldn't be with a view of renouncing them was she choosing among them or did she want them all this question before mrs stringham had decided what to do made others vain in accordance with which she saw or believed she did that if it might be dangerous to call out to sound in any way a surprise it would probably be safe enough to withdraw as she had come she watched a while longer she held her breath and she never knew afterwards what time had elapsed not many minutes probably yet they hadn't seemed few and they had given her so much to think of not only while creeping home but while waiting afterwards at the inn that she was still busy with them when late in the afternoon milly reappeared she had stopped at the point of the path where the tauchnitz lay had taken it up and with a pencil attached to her watch-guard had scrawled a word abianto across the cover after which even under the girl's continued delay she had measured time without a return of alarm for she now saw that the great thing she had brought away was precisely a conviction that the future wasn't to exist for her princess in the form of any sharp or simple release from the human predicament it wouldn't be for her a question of a flying leap and thereby of a quick escape it would be a question of taking full in the face the whole assault of life to the general muster of which indeed her face might have been directly presented as she sat there on her rock mrs stringham was thus able to say to herself during still another wait of some length that if her young friend still continued absent it wouldn't be because whatever the opportunity she had cut short the thread she wouldn't have committed suicide she knew herself unmistakably reserved for some more complicated passage 
This was the very vision in which she had, with no little awe, been discovered. The image that thus remained with the elder lady kept the character of a revelation. During the breathless minutes of her watch she had seen her companion afresh. The latter's type, aspect, marks, her history, her state, her beauty, her mystery, all unconsciously betrayed themselves to the alpine air, and all had been gathered in again to feed Mrs. Stringham's flame. They are things that will more distinctly appear for us, and they are meanwhile briefly represented by the enthusiasm that was stronger on our friend's part than any doubt. It was a consciousness she was scarce yet used to carrying, but she had, as beneath her feet, a mine of something precious. She seemed to herself to stand near the mouth, not yet quite cleared. The mine but needed working, and would certainly yield a treasure. She wasn't thinking, either, of Milly's gold. End of Book 3, Chapter 1